Welcome to the Think Podcast, the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective with your host, Joel Sedekes. And now, get ready to think. Welcome to the Think Podcast with Joel Sedekes. I'm Joel Sedekes, and this is the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective to help you explain share and defend the Christian message. Right off the bat, if you can see and hear me, please drop a comment below. Just let me know, hey, I can see you, I can hear you. Now, if you've been studying apologetics at all over the last 20 years, you've probably learned some pretty solid arguments against new atheism, maybe Islam, Mormonism, and other ideologies that are believed by those outside the church. But in the last few years, a completely new ideology has sprung onto the scene, catching many of us off guard and making head-spinning progress within the church before many of us even recognized it as a danger. This is the ideology of critical theory, also known as wokeness, and it presents a unique set of challenges to believers who desire to follow Jesus and obey his word. My guest today is Neil Shenvey, and Dr. Shenvey is going to help us sort out the tangled web of wokeness in which we currently find ourselves and help you get equipped to navigate the ever-changing world of woke terminology and to respond to woke arguments biblically, lovingly, and compellingly. Dr. Shenvey grew up in the, in Delaware and attended Princeton University. You want to talk about bona fides? Listen, listen to this education. Let's listen to this educational pedigree of Dr. Shenvey. He grew up in Delaware, attended Princeton University as an undergraduate before earning his PhD in theoretical chemistry at UC Berkeley, where he became a Christian. And from 2005 to 2010, Dr. Shenvey worked as a postdoctoral associate at Yale, where he did research in non, oh boy, non-diabetic dynamics. He's going to have to correct me with that one. Electron transfer and surface science. Neil moved down to Durham in 2010 to do research into nanodiabetic dy- dynamics and electronic structure theory at Duke University. But you know what? Since 2015, Dr. Shenvey has been homeschooling his four children. You have got to love that. Although he does still fiddle around with quantum mechanics every now and then for fun, as you know, we are all want to do. We have to fiddle around with quantum mechanics. Sure. Why not? When you've got the kind of educational pedigree of Dr. Shenvey, you can do that. But without any further ado, let's welcome him to the Think Podcast. Dr. Shenvey, welcome so much. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure, Joe. Can you hear me? And I, yes, can you hear I can. Me? You're on a little bit of a delay, which is, I can hear you, but we're on a little bit of a delay. Um, I'm not sure if those who are listening are hearing the delay or not, but we can huh. work with a delay. That's okay. I've talked to people halfway across the world. So if we have a little bit, bit of a delay, I can edit that out in, um, in post-production when we put this on the podcast. And for now, folks who are watching live, that's okay. It's just like on the news. Sometimes there's a little bit of a delay. So that's perfectly fine. But Dr. Shenvey, how, how are you doing today? How's life down there in beautiful Durham? It's very hot right now. It's very hot. What's the temperature? 95 maybe. Oh, yeah, that's that's pretty hot. I think it's somewhere something like that in Chicago as well. It's uh it's is that is that pretty typical this time of year for you? Unfortunately, yes. 
Okay. Okay. Well, you, um, I was reading your, your, uh, your education, uh, your, your educational pedigree just before I brought you in. And, you know, while you've got quite, um, quite a robust educational pedigree, I noticed there was nothing in there about critical theory, wokeness. And yet you have become, if I, if I can say this, uh, one of the leading voices in talking about this issue. So how does a guy who has studied, uh, n- okay, help me out. Not a, what, not, how, what's non-idiobatic, non-idiobatic, um, dynamics. dynamics. Thank you. I was looking through your bio again. How does a guy who studied that end up becoming one of the leading voices within the church talking about critical theory and wokeness? So I did do a lot of apologetics that sort of standard learning about how to defend the reliability of the Bible, the evidence for the resurrection, things like that. And I actually have written a book, it's unpublished, but I wrote a book on general apologetics and trying to, especially writing to intellectuals, my peers, my colleagues who are very intelligent, very well educated, and how do you communicate to them the idea that Christianity is not just true, but rational and intellectually defensible. Well, I was doing that, and then a few years ago, five or six years ago, I began noticing a lot of people subscribing to unusual theological ideas that were removed from orthodoxy, and I could understand why. And I was not interested in cultural apologetics. I I was not interested in politics, really. I was very apolitical. But I was concerned with the theological direction people were heading in. And it got worse and worse and worse, and I couldn't figure out why. And around that time, I met my collaborator, Dr. Pat Sawyer, who was getting his PhD in cultural studies and education at UNC Greensboro. And that was actually very providential because his work was on critical theory. And when I began to learn about that, he told me about what he was doing, I realized that that was the ideology that was being expressed in the woke movement and that was what was coming out in people's theology so that's how i got interested in the subject and because i was finishing my book up i looked for another project to work on and so i began reading about these intellectual traditions and that's what i've been doing for the last i think two or three years okay now do you um how did you get into apologetics in general in the first place um you said you didn't have a whole lot of interest in in politics and things like that but um are are you naturally bent toward that way of thinking are you are you uh, naturally a person who likes to uh, establish a case prove a point defend the truth of something or uh do you feel like you were more thrust into this world yeah as a scientist i was trained to think rationally and carefully, and especially actually one of my favorite courses as an undergraduate was this Philosophy 101 course I took at Princeton under Boss Ben Frossen, who's a well-known philosopher. But it was very uh, it was very intellectually engaging, and I enjoyed it, and it just taught me how to think carefully about any, any issue. Uh, and it, so that's always been my this proclivity is thinking carefully about everything, including my faith. I became a Christian in graduate school, so I had to wrestle with a lot of these intellectual questions very early on. Um, but that, that's sort of my bent, I think, intellectually. You became a Christian in graduate school. That's really amazing. 
what was your background? Were you a religious or spiritual person at all prior to that? Yeah, I was spiritual but not religious. I grew up with a very loving moral parents, but um, didn't really have any formal religious training at all. And uh, when I got to Princeton, I really knew nothing about Christianity. I would have called myself a Christian just because I was living in the United States. I was not Muslim. I was not Hindu, so I was a Christian. But I didn't actually believe anything that Christians believe. I knew nothing about really the Bible even. And uh, so I became a Christian in graduate school through knowing my future wife, Christina, through going to church with her, and through reading C.S. Lewis, basically. Wow. Church and C.S. Lewis, that's a, a powerful combination there. And then you, you uh, factor in uh, a good woman, and uh, that'll, that'll impact a man's life big time. Mm. Uh, when I met my own wife, it had a, a major, she had a major impact on me spiritually as well. So, um, Neil, what do Christians, and especially church leaders and apologists, those who are committed to defending the biblical worldview, need to know about wokeness? I think people don't realize that this whole ideology has deep academic and philosophical roots. They see people proclaiming that they're anti-racist, that they are for social justice, and they interpret those words sort of through normal English. Like, if you're anti-racist, it means you're opposed to racism. That's not what the word means. If you're for social justice as a Christian, you want to see God's principles biblical principles enshrined into law, right? Things like we should honor the poor, we should care for the poor, we should uh, work to make sure everyone has their rights as, as a human being respected. But that's not what social justice means in this context. So I think that Christians need to recognize first that this is part of a very deep ideology or even worldview. Uh, second, it's coherent. So you can't pick it apart. You can't just be anti-racist. You can't just be pro-social justice in some narrow sense of helping the poor. That this ideology is a comprehensive way to see all moral, ethical issues. It's a way to see reality, really. So I think Christians see these manifestations of wokeness, and they think, oh, they just care about the poor. They just want to have a biblical approach to politics. But there's much more to it than that. And I think that's what allows it to fly under the radar for so long. They see people in their congregations, even maybe pastors and leaders, espousing these ideas. And years later, they look back and say, that was a turning point. That's where things started to go off the rails. Right. So what are some of the fundamental characteristics, the tenets, the terms of this movement, and what are some of the different variations that we might see out there in the culture? So some of the terms I mentioned already, things like anti-racism, uh, well, the term it's used in the literature is called hegemonic power. It's, it's not common in popular parlance these days, but uh, intersectionality, intersectionality is another word you hear a lot. Um, social justice is a, is a word you hear a lot. Um, white privilege, white fragility, these are all terms that are used by this movement. And again, they're all defined within the academic literature, but they often don't have the meanings you would assume. So, for example, take, or take a word like racism. 
Racism is a word you find in the dictionary. It's a word we recognize, and yet that word has been redefined by critical theory. So rather than referring to racial prejudice, which is what you'll find in the dictionary, racism to a critical theorist refers to a system of racial hierarchy, not to personal prejudice. So when they talk about racism and being anti-racist, they mean that you have to be actively opposed to dismantling the systems and structures which produce racial hierarchy. That means all of that. They don't mean that you have to be personally not racially prejudiced. In fact, they would argue that sometimes you have to be racially discriminatory in order to achieve racial equity. So for example, Ibram Kendi, who wrote the book How to Be an Anti-Racist, says that there is good anti-racist discrimination and there is bad racist discrimination, but it is real discrimination. So Discrimination is not necessarily bad as long as you're doing it on behalf of racial equity. Okay, quick sidebar. Um, is that okay? Can we just, because I was speaking with a pastor friend of mine recently, and and actually uh, uh, Joe Thorne, who's a good Reformed Baptist like yourself, and uh, he was telling me that, you know, the term racism is not technically in the Bible. In the Bible, we read about, you know, partiality and favoritism and uh, God is not a respecter of persons and things like that. So since racism itself is not a biblical term, is it that big of a deal, Neil, if we take it and, and give it a new definition? Why, why is that such a problem? Or is that a problem? Well, I think it's a problem because you can always define in that in philosophy, you can define terms however you want, right? So you can just say, I'm going to define the term this way. But in common parlance, you can't just define a new term, a common term in an unusual way. The example that I use is if I define upfront, I say, I'm going to define the word bigot to mean a female hockey player. That's what bigot means. And then I go into a room full of female hockey players and then keep calling them bigots and they get all upset. Okay, have I done something illogical? Well, no, because I told them how I'm defining the word, but they're going to be uncomfortable, they're going to be upset because they see that I'm playing a game with the word, and they'll be offended. Uh, so that's why I would resist changing common words. And more than that, this systemic definition of racism, when you read it by racism, it can obscure the fact that racism is primarily a sin. So racism is primarily between, like all things, between you and God. And so you want to define words in a way that reflects a Christian worldview. In the same way, I would not want to redefine adultery as a system of sexual uh, you know, immorality, a system. What does that even mean? You know, we can talk about having an adulterous culture or something, but, but adultery primarily is about how you... Uh, are faithful or unfaithful to your wife personally. So I think we have to ask the question, one, are we redefining the words in a way that will confuse people? And two, are we defining words in a way that's congruent with a Christian worldview or not? Uh, and those are two important questions to ask. And I think that the way that critical theorists define racism, in some ways it can be helpful, but in the main, it's very misleading. And actually, Joel, let me try to switch microphones. I think I figured out how to get my mic to work. So one second. I'll try to get the mic to work. 
give me like sure. one minute here. Yeah. And while you're doing that, let me just give a quick plug for a, another episode that we did a couple of weeks ago with Hillary Morgan Ferrer. She's from Mama Bear Apologetics. And she and I had a great discussion about this idea of linguistic theft. Linguistic theft is the appropriation and redefinition of words to fit a particular agenda before that word has had the chance to evolve on its own so that you can push a particular agenda with the new definition of that word. So I hear what you're saying. It's one thing if we're... We, Racism has a set definition that has been in common parlance, but when you take that word and you redefine it before society has a chance to catch on and you're using the new definition in a room full or a, a culture full of people who are still operating off the old definition, now you're creating confusion and uh, while it might be beneficial to you and your cause, it might actually um, end up sowing division or, or confusion among the people who are hearing you use that word. Is that, is that, uh, it, it, am I understanding you correctly on that? Yes. Can you hear better? Is my mic better Much now? Better. Much oh, better. good. Okay. I had it yes. on mute over here. It's, uh, it's very annoying. All right. Well, now we can talk for real. <laughs> nice. So, um, okay. Yeah, I agree. Actually, that, uh, that quote from Mama Bear Apologetics was very, I highlighted it. It's great. Um, and she's exactly right. The, uh, I don't want to be conspiratorial here. I, I just want to do, I do want to say that, um, there are ideological movements that very strategically redefine words. I mean, a simple example would be how, uh, man and woman are now redefined, right? The words themselves are now redefined. And it's not because they just happen naturally that we redefine these words. No, there's an ideology that very intentionally is redefining words like man and woman, things like marriage. I mean, the word bigot, fascist. These are emotionally charged words that have been intentionally redefined or at least ambiguously defined to promote a certain you know, position. And by the way, I'm not saying the, only the left does that. The right does that too with words like patriot. Oh, are you patriotic? Are you, you know, I, that, or, you know, that, those kind of words also can be redefined uh, in, in ways that promote a certain agenda. Are you pro-freedom? So I think we should be wary whenever someone takes a word and uses it as what's called a boo word or a hooray word. They, they're words that are used simply to promote a certain visceral reaction, and we should resist that. Boo word and hooray word. I've never heard that. Yeah, I think that can you can you unpack that a little bit? So uh, both – I don't remember where I got that terminology. I think some philosophers have used that. But a boo word is a word that has, evokes a negative reaction without having a lot of meaning. So when I call something, something a bigot, what do I really mean today? It just means a person I don't like. When I call someone a fascist, it doesn't mean they're actually supporting a fascist government necessarily. It means that I don't like their politics. Right. Um, and similarly, a hooray word would be a word like justice equality, right? Oh, are you, what are you, anti-justice? No, everyone is pro-justice. And so it, it becomes a meaningless term. I and mean, it's not actually meaningless, but the way we use it today is meaningless. Patriotism. Mm. So these are words that are hooray words with positive connotations. So if I can trick someone into accepting my definition of these words, I can get them to subscribe to whatever ideology I want. Kind of like tacking phobic on the end of mm -hmm. 
of phrases, right? Nobody wants to have an irrational fear of something. Sure. A phobia. Oh, I've got a phobia. I don't want to have a phobia. And that becomes a boo word. You can, you can tack that onto anything you want and therefore uh, get someone to, to sort of follow your line of thinking. Is that the idea? Yep. Okay. What makes wokeism, wokeness, uh, critical theory, what makes this different from other ideologies that we've been dealing with as apologists? And then what, what, is the same about it? What's different and what's the same? So people, I think people approach critical theory as if it's postmodernism. So postmodernism very broadly is an approach to uh, meta-narratives. It's skeptical of meta-narratives. So postmodernists said we don't like the idea of this overarching, coherent worldview, a narrative about reality. We're skeptical of that. We think it's often a, as a power play. We're going to deconstruct those truth claims as really bids for power. So when apologists hear critical theorists making claims like, oh, objectivity is a white Western male construct, right? Or the claim of colorblindness is actually a racist construct. They make claims like that, and they think they're, they are postmodernists. They're just trying to deconstruct these truth claims as bids for power. So apologists will, will often... <laughs> Say, respond in the way they're trained to respond to postmodernism, they'll say things like, oh, is that objectively true, right? Because they think they're denying objective truth. But critical theory is not postmodernism. In fact, critical theory uh, rejects postmodernism in exactly for, that, for this reason. For critical theorists, social justice is the ultimate good. It's the purpose of their enterprise. And so they realize pretty quickly that if you deconstruct all meta narratives, you have to deconstruct social justice as a, as an ultimate goal, right? Because that claim itself that social justice is good. Oh yeah, you do. You say that because you want power. So they realize that would be self defeating. So they will pull back and say, not all truth claims are bids for power. Some truth claims are actually because so they would say there is objective truth. In fact, there's objective moral truth. Oppression is evil. Justice is good. Equity is good. Inclusion is good. So they're a deeply moral realist. Uh, the, the worldview is deeply steeped in moral realism. So they have no problem saying that, yes, there's objective truth and there's objective justice and objective oppression. However, we will de deconstruct claims that are opposed to equality. So certain truth claims will be viewed with skepticism, whereas other truth claims will not be. So that's why you'd have people deconstructing things like gender as a bid for power, a way to impose the social, uh, the, the, the gender binary on society. will deconstruct gender, but they will not deconstruct race, for example. But they won't say, oh, yeah, you claim to be black, but that's just a way to label yourself. They'll say, no, 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 actually, that's, that is, is complicated, but they will say that's a very real source of oppression. And that's why you can be transgender, but not transracial. So these two categories are theorized in entirely opposing ways. There's real tension there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you for that explanation. And of course, uh, many of us may remember the um, the, the woman who Rachel Delosio chapter of. Th thank you, thank you. Yes. Uh, so Rachel Dolezal, who was she was posing as an African American. And turns out she was white as the driven snow. And uh, 
And she got in a lot of trouble for that, even though she identified as black. Now, if gender or, um, you know, if, if biological gender and race are both sources of oppression in our society, according to wokeness, why is it okay for a biological woman to identify as a man, but not for a biological white person to identify as a black person? What, what's, what's the logic there? Is there a consistent logic there? So, mm, yeah, that, so the, uh, Rebecca Tuval, what Tuvel was a philosopher who raised exactly that question in the journal Hypatia. Uh, it's a feminist philosophy journal. And a few years ago, she asked exactly that question. She's like, well, how can you say that it's okay to be transgender, but not transracial? And she listed the various arguments philosophers give. Remember, she's an academic philosopher asking, look, I'm not saying it's wrong or right. I'm just saying, What's a consistent approach to race and gender? And she said, and this huge her point was there isn't one right now. We have to come up with a good approach to race and gender so they can both, we can explain consistently why transgender is good, but trans race is bad. And it sounds a little ad hoc. It, yeah, that was her point. And she's, again, she's trying, from a, she's, she's from a woke perspective, she's trying to say, I want to affirm those things. But how do you do that consistently? And her paper got slammed as transphobic, and even though she's trying to just consistently figure out how to do it. So the bottom line is there's and and okay. So from an analytic perspective, I'd say it's not very consistent. They're both social according to critical theorists, both race and gender are social constructs. They are. That's that's their their view. And so we should be able to both be transracial or transgender, and we should be able to deconstruct both race and gender, but they don't want to do that. But So what's the consistent – how do you do that consistently? And the answer is you do that by saying the ultimate goal is social justice, not consistency. Not You don't start with some set of abstract principles and then work out their conclusions. That's a white Western way of thinking about reality. What you do is you say, we want equity. We want to end oppression. And what's the best way to do that? And in, in historically, or however they worked it out, they've decided that the way to end gender oppression and to end sexism is to deconstruct gender and show it's all arbitrary, right? But then the best way to, to dismantle oppression uh, within a race is to say, no, there's real oppression based on race and colorblindness is actually the problem. It's allowing people to oppress blacks and Asians and Hispanics and people of color. So we have to make these these racial features very socially salient and focus on them. And we can't let people blur these boundaries because that would lead to people like you could just say, well, I want affirmative action because I identify as a black person or an Asian or, or I don't identify as a white person. So that's real tension. There, there is a there is, and actually, you can see it now in the um, the Black Lives Matter movement. Some people are pushing it to say no, Black trans lives matter, because which is a greater source of oppression, blackness or transness? And, or you can see how trans issues have totally subsumed traditional feminism. With say J.K. Rowling, the author of Harry Potter, has taken a very firm stance, saying you know. It's, if you want to be transgender, that's totally fine. I affirm you. I love trans people. But sex is real. I am a biological woman, and I, that means something important to me. 
and I will I refuse to say that trans women are women. And she has been slammed. All of her actor, all of the Harry Potter actors have come out and said she's totally wrong. Trans women are women. And keep in mind, she's not she's all she's saying is do whatever you want, be whatever gender you want, marry whoever you want, but just don't say that my biological sex is not important. <laughs> and that's enough to, yeah. for her to trip the, all the to step on all the landmines. You know, when, when people come across, when people hit into that brick wall like that, when, when they start to see how their own I- ideology is cannibalizing themselves, yeah. uh, I, I want to just open my arms open wide and say, hey, I listen, I hear you, sister. God did make you a woman. Come on over to the biblical worldview because this will all make sense. Yeah. You know, there is such a thing as male and female. And, and I think that that's, uh, well, we're going to talk about the, uh, 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 an apologetic approach to all this. But Neil, where did this ideology come from? Where did critical theory or wokeness come from? Why is it called wokeness? Um, I, cause I've heard you talk quite a lot about critical theory and, and some of the sources of that. Feel free to touch on that. But why wokeness? And, uh, and then I'd like to talk about how did it work its way into the church, but we can talk about that next. So, okay. It's very the origin of these ideas is pretty complicated and, and in dispute. So no one disputes where they come from ultimately. They 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 pretty much have their origin in Karl Marx. Some would say in Hegel before him, maybe some in Nietzsche a little bit too, but pretty much people academics, academics will say that critical theory really begins with Marx. You have to start somewhere. And then these but but not his ideas about economics. It's really his ideas about power. How does power work? Now, he, he believed that all power was determined by economics, by class issues. And once we fix economic issues, then we'll fix everything else. That was his idea. But later Marxists, people uh, like philosophers in the Frankfurt School, Antonio Gramsci and others, they said, actually, that's simplistic because we think power uh, – operates on more than just the economic level and really other that what, what he called the superstructure actually is in a dialectical relationship. It's, it's in a, a relationship with the economic base. And so we're not just oppressed by econ- economics, we're also oppressed by ideas. We're, we're dominated by certain ideas that are in our culture. And they, those ideas can actually reinforce economic oppression and other forms of oppression. And so those later Marxian thinkers in the Frankfurt School and then later within uh, the the post-colonial movements, the decolonial movements, within the feminist movement, within the black liberation movement of the 60s and 70s, all of those social movements drew on those sources and academically they came to be known as critical social theories or critical theory broadly construed. Meaning there are all movements and, and theories that aim to understand how power works to produce social inequality or an oppression. So all those movements broadly are critical social theories. And what we're seeing today is undeniably part of that tradition. Now, what you want to call it, if you want to call it cultural Marxism, if you want to call it identity politics, intersectionality, doesn't, doesn't matter to me. Uh, it's in the critical tradition. I call it contemporary critical theory, but the, the label doesn't matter. Uh, but that's where the ideas came from. The term woke, it comes from, I forget who it was. It, it might have been Erica Badu, I, but on, as an R&B singer, maybe India Ari. But uh, uh, I know it was a black 
female uh, R&B singer, she had a line about being woke in one of her songs, and it came into sort of colloquial language to refer to being aware of um, racism, essentially, and aware of social justice issues within the black community. But then that was, I think it was like eight years ago. It came in, but it was then used much more broadly nowadays, often pejoratively, to describe this movement uh, for social justice and equity that crosses lines of race, class, gender, uh, physical ability, sexuality, uh, just so it would so and used descriptively. There are people that still use the term descriptively today. They will they will say, "I am woke," and I want you know, I, I I believe in the woke movement, and it just means that they are for social justice, and they're thinking in terms of race, class, gender, sexuality, physical ability, age, etc. Okay, so thank you for that explanation. Now. Why is this idea, <clears throat> ideology such a threat, Neil? And how has it made such incredible headway into the church? So it, it's a, so there are many reasons of threat. So I, I should have gone through like the basic postulates. Uh, one is that so critical theory in its contemporary form divides reality, social reality, into oppressor groups and oppressed groups along lines of race, class, gender, sexuality, physical ability, and so forth. I could give you dozens of quotes to this effect. I could show you diagrams in textbooks, you know, showing this hierarchy of, of race, class, gender, etc. You've actually, you know what, you sent me a diagram several months ago. I was preparing a, a talk on the biblical worldview, and I needed an example of critical theory as sort of an alternative view. And you sent me in a great diagram. It was that one with the circle, and on the top of the circle are all the oppressor categories. Oh, yeah. And the bottom of the circle are all the corresponding oppressed categories. So that was really helpful. I appreciated that. There are a lot of those. I mean, you can find them in uh, D'Angelo and Sensoy's book, Is Everyone Really Equal? Figure 5.1. Um, in Adam's Teaching for Diversity and Social Justice, Appendix C, she has a figure called the Matrix of Oppression. It's, but it's, it's not some kind of crazy conservative fundamentalist fever dream. This is what they actually teach, and it's very clear. Uh, so that's one way they, they view social reality along those oppressor-oppressed axes. They're also called privileged, subordinate, or dominant, subordinate, privileged, oppressed. Those are all various terms they use to describe the social binary. And But right there, I'd say that's just not the right way biblically to think about human beings, right? Uh, first of all, because we, we are fundamentally not part of members of various groups. We're fundamentally creatures made in God's image. We are fundamentally sinners, and we fundamentally need a rescue, a savior. So that's that unites all human beings across those various axes of identity, and then more than that for Christians, if you adopt that way of thinking about people, then you'll have to walk into church on Sunday and say, "Well, that's an oppressor Christian. That's an oppressed Christian. That person's oppressing me for my gender, but they're oppressed for their race." That's not the way to think about Christians. We we just right. not we cannot bring that into the church. We have to relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Regardless of how we relate to one another out there in the world, uh, or I say how, regardless of how the world relates to each other, people, Christians have to relate to one another primarily as siblings, not as oppressed versus oppressor. So that's just right off the bat, it's going to totally destroy your biblical ideas about identity. Who are you? 
what's the most important thing about you? I, actually, I, I Monique Dusson is a black woman who, by, by her own account, was completely sold on critical race theory growing up. And then when she went to a Christian school, she was given these categories and taught that they were true. So she said at one point she would have described herself as black and a woman first and then a Christian. And then since then, she said, no, I, now I realize that's completely the, op, the wrong way to think about my identity. I'm a Christian first. And then secondarily, I'm black and I'm a woman and I am educated and all these other categories. Now, it's not that she's no, she is still a woman, right? At Galatians 3.26, when it says there's neither Jew nor Greek slave nor free male nor female, well, sure, it doesn't mean you're not male anymore or not female or not Jewish or not Greek. You still are those things, but your Christian identity is the primary one in your life now. And in fact, in Philippians 2, Paul will say that everything else is dung, is garbage compared to knowing Christ. So that's how we ought to view our identity. And But critical theory would say absolutely not. It has no category for this transcendent uh, identity that surpasses everything else because it's not a theistic worldview. So that's just one way. Um, another big way is that uh, critical theory does take the skeptical attitude towards truth claims when they're seen as oppressive. So Neil, can I, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm so sorry to, to interrupt you there. You just said that this is not a theistic worldview, correct? Did yeah. I hear that right? Yeah. Okay. Je just so everyone listening and watching right now is is processing because you're throwing so much great quality information. And I know you could do this in your sleep. Believe me, I've heard some of the other episodes you've done. I mean, I appreciate you coming on here. But for some folks, they're watching this. And I know even the term folk, folks, is uh, that's a <laughs> laden term as well. But you're talking about critical theory and wokeism as a worldview that is non-theistic. Now, think about what that means. Think about what the implications are for that when a church adopts this line of thinking, this, this worldview, when they start to incorporate it into their, their programming, into their preaching, into their teaching, into their Sunday school, into their social media posts. They're adopting, according to you, Neil, what you're saying is they're actually adopting a non-theistic way of thinking, a non-theistic, meaning a godless view of the world. And they're trying to um, uh, syncretize that with the Christian worldview, which is by definition, it's the, uh, the apex of theistic worldviews. Mm -hmm. so, so did I get that right? Is that, is that what's going on when the church adopts this way of thinking? Yeah, that's what's one of the main reasons that it's never going to work and it's going to destroy your theology is that it just fundamentally, the way that they conceive of reality is not the way that Christians can possibly conceive of reality. When I, when I say critical theory is a worldview, again, keep in mind I'm talking about this contemporary manifestation of critical theory. People will say, oh, it's just a discipline, it's just a tool. I'm saying, yeah, I get that it's, a, it's really broad, there are lots of different traditions within it, but what we're seeing today it, it and here's how you know it's a worldview. It answers worldview questions. Like how do you identify a worldview? A worldview answers questions like, who am I? What is the problem with humanity? What's wrong with the world? How do I fix that problem? You know, what's the what's the purpose of my life? Well, critic Christianity answers those questions absolutely. You know, who are you? First of all, you're the creature creature of a holy, loving, and good God. 
What's the problem with humanity? Well, we're sinners. What's the solution? Jesus Christ is the solution. Uh, what's the purpose in life? To glorify God. So Christianity answers all those fundamental questions, but so does critical theory. Well, who am I? It tells you. Critical theory says you're part of these oppressed and oppressor groups vying for dominance. What's our problem with, with, with the world? Oppression. That we live in an unjust society. We live in a racist society. We live in a white supremacist society. We live in a sex society. We live in a ableist society. Those are the various oppressions that are producing all our problems. What is our solution? Activism. We have to dismantle unjust structures. And what's your purpose? Your purpose in life is to enact social change. So it's answering the same questions, but in completely different ways. And wow. Yeah. So, so when you put it like that, I, I, I find, and actually it's interesting. Um, one of the the people, uh, some of the people that are speaking out most emphatically against critical theory right now are two, two or three atheists, um, James Lindsay, Helen Pluckrose, and Peter Bogosian. And Lindsay and Pluckrose are writing, have written a book called Cynical Theories, which goes through all these ideas and where they came from and why they're wrong. And they are atheists. And what's interesting is that I've noticed and I've been very encouraged to see that Helen has been calling critical theory a meta narrative. Now she doesn't use the term worldly, but and she's she's an atheist. She's not approaching right. this as a Christian apologist, but she's been she recognizes it's a story. She talks about how at some point in the eighties, postmodernism went from being a skeptical of meta narratives to propounding a meta narrative, a social justice meta narrative. So she calls it. She'll call it alternatively critical theory uh, or applied postmodernism, but she realizes that this is not your grandfather's postmodernism. This is a mutated form that has actually gone back on its skepticism and said, in fact, there is one right meta narrative, which is social justice. And a and meta it, a meta narrative. Just can you, can you just real quickly define what is a meta narrative for us? It's like an overarching story. You know how comic books have story arcs. Well, a meta narrative is not like one little story arc. It's the big story arc, like in Avengers movies, right? The Avengers movies. Totally. There are all these little stories about Captain America and Iron Man and Hulk. But there was one big story about Thanos, right? And it was all tied together. Well, a meta narrative is that humongous story arc that ties together all the little stories. And so, when you're talking about a worldview, uh, it's a, it's a it's a large story that you put your individual life into. I say my little story of my life fits into this larger story about reality. Okay, now how has the ideology known as wokeness or critical theory worked its way into the church so that, Neil, I can go on Twitter, probably right now, and I can look at the timelines of trusted Christian leaders and teachers, folks that I would have never questioned their orthodoxy, folks that I have been able to glean so much truth from, and I can see them uh, re repeating statements straight out of the woke playbook. How how is it that I that I can have a conversation with a member of my own church, someone that I've known for years? And I'm speaking 
kind of abstractly here, but how is it that believers can find themselves on two completely opposite sides of this chasm? Um, and, and how did this ideology permeate its way through the church? It seems like overnight and, and so thoroughly that it's even drawn in what I would have considered to be very solid, what many would have considered to have been very solid, very biblically minded thinkers. How did that happen? I think that there are a lot of steps along the way. One is that you have to realize that pretty much everyone who was going to college, went to college for the last 20 years, 30 years, was being exposed to these ideas. I mean, there are just, they suffuse the academy. Now, not when I was in college 20 years ago, they weren't in the sciences, and but they they were in the humanities. Now, I just didn't take those classes, but I was I was hearing those terms, those ideas. They've been around for quite some time. But today, they're, they're, so they were there, but only in the last like five years, 10 years, have they really entered the mainstream. But they were latent in the in the edu- in the education actually i just finished a book called uh, the critical turn in education where this guy is completely woke he's a professor uh, i think of, of english literature but he he documents how critical theory in his own terms he calls it critical theory but how it entered academia uh, in the mid i think the day he says it entered education was 1995 so the, but the, but that's when he, he has a date. It's like there's a paper written in 1996 by Tate and I think Billings is a hyphenated name. But that was the date that marks the critical race theory being injected into education, 1996. And so I that was just when I was entering college, 97, was when it was just entering education. So I think one thing is that people that are, say, of my age, I'm 40. So if you're 40 or over – you might not have gotten this in your actual college degree, right? But people that are five years younger than me, 10 years younger than me, it's everywhere in their education. So there's a disconnect between what older pastors, they hear these terms, they're kind of like, I kind of think I know what that means, but they have no idea. Whereas the younger generation, it's like their mother's milk. They, they are steeped in these ideas. And so the pastors who ought to be sort of shepherding their flocks are just ill-equipped because it wasn't there. I mean, I've been in apologetics for 20 years or so. And when I was learning apologetics, the big concern was postmodernism. I didn't learn anything about how to address issues of race and gender. I just knew how to like people that would deny objective truth. I knew how to deal with that. Or they would deny that morality exists. I can, I can deal with that. I never learned how to deal with someone who talks about racial oppression. As a system of uh, racial, hierarchy. I was like, "What? What are you talking about?" Because that was not in the. It was not in my education. It was not in the academy when I was going to school, but now it is. So I think there is some element of Christian leaders who are, are in their forties and fifties, sixties, seventies, who just are not on the cutting edge of this theory and are therefore totally unequipped and are being bulldozed by it because they just don't recognize it as a worldview. They think it's just like, oh, it's just sociology. Well, sort of, but it's a lot deeper than that. Wow. So I'm 36, and I I remember, anecdotally from my own experience, I remember 
being in school, I, I did go to public schools and, you know, I turned out okay. <laughs> but uh, I remember being fed this stuff at least in high school yeah. and sort of in its, sort of in its, uh, you know, uh, proto forms as early as middle school, seventh grade. I think I remember my, my homeroom teacher saying, you know, certain things. And I remember thinking like, you know, you know, we called it different things. It was sort of um, piggybacking off of political correctness. Yeah. There was this whole idea of uh, a victim culture, victim mentality, and, and uh, affirmative action was really beginning to take hold. And there was a lot of debate about that in the culture, I remember, mm-hmm. and uh, for and against. And I remember, um, I think it was my junior year, which would have been, uh, toward 2000, 2001, somewhere in there. I remember our teacher having us read Toni Morrison books and, uh, and really pushing this idea that, that, um, you know, white people really need to feel bad today about slavery in the past. Mm. And, and I remember thinking, you know, look, I, my ancestors didn't know, didn't own slaves. I didn't own any slaves. If my friends, if I caught my friends owning slaves, I'd tell them to knock it off. You know, that's not, but I bet I'm doing this as a Christian, you know? And I remember thinking, you know, I'm opposed to slavery, but there's, there's something else going on here. Yeah. There's a, there's a different, there's, there's a different set of beliefs that are sort of kind of approximating the same conclusions, but they're coming at it a very different way. And I've, I've been able to see that now over the last 20 years take root and, uh, and blossom, uh, into what we're seeing today. Um, so it's interesting what you said about, there's a certain age demographic, I guess in, in saying that, and I don't like to talk too much. I want to, I want to let you talk more, Neil, but, um, but I'm resonating with what you're saying because at 36, I think I was sort of on that, on the, the transitional, I was in the transitional age where it wasn't quite my mother's milk, yeah, the way you phrased it, but it also didn't catch me completely off guard at an older age. Mm-hmm. Would you put yourself in that same category, being forty? Uh, no, so I it, it didn't catch me off guard. Like I said, as five years ago, six years ago, it really when it, it entered the mainstream conversation with Black Lives Matter. That's when critical okay. theory entered the mainstream discourse. I mean, I, sure, political correctness you could see as a manifestation of these ideas a little, to some extent, but it really hit the news, politics everywhere, in two thousand fourteen or so. Um, and it, so, so yeah, I, I, so I, I, I will just say personally, I was blindsided by it. I, I had no idea what it was. I had no idea what I was seeing. And yeah, I think it is just an age thing. I bet you anything that, you know, a 25 year old would be able to say, tell a very different story about what they were exposed to in school. Um, not exposed to, I, I was public schooled all through my childhood too. And I turned out fine. But I think that there is a generational difference and Christians are playing catch up suddenly, trying to understand what these ideas are and where they come from. The other side of it, too, is that I think evangelicals are uh, they do feel white evangelicals do feel a lot of shame and guilt for a failure of the of Christian, the Christian church to oppose slavery and to, to oppose Jim Crow and to fight for racial justice in the past and that the the racial reconciliation movement in the 90s it was actually seeing a lot of fruit in terms of more and more in, interracial congregations and then this movement and it really, it really was Donald Trump's election that just totally scuttled that and to, totally reversed all those trends 
And I think because of that, Christian pastors are trying to figure out how can we how can we get racial reconciliation? How can we get multi ethnic churches, which I think are, are are that's a good thing. They are a reflection of God's kingdom because obviously yeah, Christianity is not the white man's religion. Christianity is God's religion. Right. And it, it, people from every tribe, nation, and tongue will be, you know, worshiping God forever. Um, it, you know, but so it's good mm-hmm. for us to say, why do our churches look so segregated? Totally fine. And why did uh, did the election of Donald Trump so divide the church along racial lines? This is a fine question to ask. The answer they're they're settling on, though, is the wrong answer. The answer is that we need to see things through a critical lens and then that will solve all our problems. I'm like, no, that will exacerbate your problems a thousandfold. Yes. So that, so I think that's another reason why it's taken off. So to the degree that it has, because Christians are looking for answers and they're finding answers readily at hand and answers that are given that are everywhere in the culture right now. But we have to have the wherewithal to say, no, those are not the answers. And in fact, those answers will be devastating to the church, to our theology, to our way of thinking about reality. So how can Christians who many of us have been thoroughly equipped to defend against atheism and even Mormonism and Islam, how can Christians who are trained in that old school of apologetics successfully defend against critical theory and wokeness, especially when many of those we are finding ourselves defending against are in the pews next to us. It, it's got well. There's one easy way, not easy way, but I would say the church can battle critical theory most effectively is through dialogue. So critical theory, dialogue is like kryptonite to critical theory. Um, if you insist that we just meet and talk about these issues with an open Bible and actually have two sides represented, that's they, they, don't, they don't like that because critical theory is sort of predicated on this idea that the ruling class uses reason and logic and so-called objective evidence and argument in order to impose their values and their norms and their ideas on everyone else and to that's how they oppress people is through ideas and through these so-called neutral objective discourses and so they resist that they say no they're telling you that's that's what's actually happening but if you say sorry uh i i'm not going to simply adopt that way of thinking and assume that these so-called objective truths are actually been power. i'm not going to assume that i'm going to actually have both sides sit down and you can Argue and discuss what is actually true. Why is that so subversive to critical theory? Because you don't accept their premises that it's all about about power. And second of all, you say there is an objective truth. And in fact, for Christians, yeah, the Bible is that objective truth. And you insist that people not simply dismiss certain claims as old white male claims. Right. You say what claim is true and biblical. And what you're going to find when you do that is that a lot of the claims being made are actually deeply unbiblical and false. But the problem is critical theory avoids that conversation by asserting without evidence or without argument that any claim which justifies power imbalances, justifies oppression as they define it, 
any claim that does that is a false claim. So if you say no, I will, I will, I reject that epistemology. I, I want us to meet together as brothers and sisters in Christ and discuss that, and and go to the Bible and say what does God say about this issue. That right off the bat will undermine critical theory's approach to knowledge, and, and so that's mm-hmm. so it seems so simple. You just say, hey, can we? If you can get someone to, to say, can we talk about this using the Bible as our standard? And not dismissing each other on the one hand as, oh, you're just an old white racist male, or you're just a cultural Marxist. We're not, those are going to be off the table for us. We're going to meet, we're going to assume the best motives. Or we're going to come together and then say, what does scripture say about race, class, gender, whatever, sexuality? Once you've done that, you're already, you've already, I'd say, broken the back of critical theory because its epistemology depends on saying, these per- this group's claims are true. This group's claims are false. Period. And you have to just listen. If you if you're in an oppressor group, you should just shut up and listen, or you should sit and you should sit with these claims. You should, if you don't believe that what we're saying is true, you need to do the work to learn that. Right. So there are all these phrases they'll use essentially to say we're right and you're wrong. Be quiet. And we can <laughs> undermine that dynamic by saying no. We're not going to assume anyone's right or wrong. The Bible's right, and all of us need to be submitted to the Bible's authority. Mm. Uh, that's, that's one thing you can do as an apologist is to simply reassert, and it's an apologist, as, a, as a theologian, as a Christian, reassert the centrality of Scripture. And, and here's the key thing. Nobody's perspective is inherently better than anyone else's. You cannot say, well, as a white man, your views are suspect. But as a black woman, or as a Hispanic woman, or as a uh, as an LGBTQ person, your views are are, are inherently more likely to be true. Again, that's that's the assumption that critical theory starts with. But we're going to say no. Nobody gets to claim that their views are are right at the outset. Not the old white male, not the young white male, not the young black male, not the not the you know old Hispanic woman. We're all going to come to scripture, and we're going to assume the assumption is God has spoken. And the assumption is that God can speak, has spoken clearly enough that we can grasp the gospel. And this is a perspicuity of scripture that you don't have to be a certain gender or a certain race or a certain class to grasp the truths of the gospel. And then we discuss what does God communicate in scripture. If you start there, that's going to really undermine the way that um, critical theory approaches knowledge of the truth. They believe truth exists. But they say certain groups have better access than others. And we're right. going to say, no, we're all subject to biases. We all have our own preferences and old prejudices. But we're all going to submit together to the authority of Scripture. Neil, I got to say, that I've never heard that. That is very encouraging. The idea that to overcome this worldview, to overcome this, this teaching, it's... It can be as simple as opening up the Bible, assuming God has spoken clearly and engaging in dialogue yeah. and letting scripture speak. And I, one of the things I love about this, Neil, is the utter confidence that you are expressing here in the fact that God has not only spoken, but he's spoken clearly. Mm-hmm. And, and all we need to do is read what he has said. That to me is so refreshing because um, I actually uh, posted this earlier on Facebook today. 
But the biblical worldview with the gospel at its core is the antidote to all man-made ideologies and simply allowing scripture to speak. You know, who would have thought that uh, scripture really is as sharp as a two-edged sword? You know, the answer has been right there in Hebrews 13 this whole time. So that's, uh, that's, am I, am I representing what you're saying? That's right. Yeah. The other thing that I would say is we that as apologists we also need to understand critical theory clearly and so right a lot of people are jumping into this and saying oh my gosh i realized there's a big problem with critical theory they're trying to learn it really fast and so they're trying to like okay what's the problem with it how do i combat it really fast and that's fine i mean i the real problem we need to engage i'm not i'm not discouraging people from being eager and trying to think through these issues but sometimes because they don't, they haven't done a lot of research and a lot of reading from the primary sources. Then, when they try to rebut it, they actually end up missing the target. So, like I said, with when you treat it as a form of postmodernism, and someone says, "You know, your claim as a white male is just a way to, to make a bid, a bid. It's a bid for power. It's not an objective truth claim. It's a bid for power." And you say, "Oh, is that objectively true?" And they say, "Yeah, it is." You say, "Well." Uh oh, <laughs> because you thought they were a postmodernist, but they're not. They'll say, "Yeah, your claim is objectively false." They have no problem saying that. Right. So another example is this: a lot of people say the real battle is the sufficiency of Scripture. You know, we don't need all these other sociological tools about race and gender to understand the Bible. We don't need those things. Uh, scripture is sufficient, but that's not the real target here. Because they'll say, first of all, they'll say, well, wait a minute. Modern medicine is true and good. It's not in the Bible, though. But no one would say that modern medicine is a rival to the Bible. And so all we're saying is that the Bible that can be supplemented by modern medicine, modern science, and insights from critical theory. Uh-oh. See that so they got around that objection. Right. Because it's not the sufficiency of scripture. They're not claiming that you you need a critical race theory or 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 queer theory to understand the Bible. They're not saying that. Here's what they are saying. They're primar- primarily what they're saying is you can't understand the Bible if you're coming from a certain social location as a old white male. You are conditioned by the system of white supremacy and by sexism, by the patriarchy, by heterosexism. You're conditioned by all these social factors so that you can't see the truth of scripture like someone from an oppressed group can see it. So as an old white male, you have to defer to the authority of their lived experiences. That's what they're saying. So it's not the sufficiency of scripture that's really at stake. It's the perspicuity of scripture, the, the, the clarity of scripture, the idea that we can see scripture regardless of our race, class, gender. Now, obviously, uh, not all truths of scripture are equally clear. You go back to the old confessions, you know, from the 16th century, 17th century. They understood back then that not everything that is in the Bible is equally clear, but the Big truths of scripture are things that God has clearly revealed through the Holy Spirit. And uh, so, but that's the, that's the right argument to make. And so as an example, but it shows you why it's important to understand what they're saying carefully, 
because you will actually undermine your own criticism if you are attacking basically not a straw man, but you're attacking the wrong target. So you so in that that can you can only develop that ability by reading the primary sources and really understanding what they're saying. And so I, I can give you good books to read that that are again they're overviews, but they're written by critical theorists. And they'll expose you to their actual arguments so that you're not attacking. You're not attacking an argument that no one that no one is really but that no one's making, but that they're not primarily making. Man, that's that's really really helpful, Neil. What has been your favorite part of this shift in your own apologetic toward focusing on critical theory and wokeness? And then, what's been the biggest challenge? Uh my favorite part has been the reading. I've actually enjoyed it reading really in depth on these issues. You know, I have really? a confession as a scientist. Uh, I never, okay. I was a theorist. I didn't read anything because in, hmm. in theoretical chemistry and I, okay, I read some stuff, but compared to experimentalists, uh, I read probably a 10th or a hundredth of the stuff that they read because as a theorist, I could derive everything I did from first principles. You know, I started with the Schrodinger equation, and I could literally derive all of my papers from that. <laughs> so, I, I, the bottom line is, so I, I would read papers occasionally, but I literally would when I, when I would write a paper. This is going to sound terrible, but I would write a peer-reviewed paper for publication on my own work. It would get published in the. This is good science. And yet, I would do all of the writing. I would write all of the theorems down. It was all math. And so I'd write it all down. I'd prove all of it, you know, from first principles. And then at the end, I would go back and like, oh, gosh, I got to put in some references now. So I'd add like 30 footnotes because 30 is like a good number. I got 30 yeah, footnotes. Yeah, yeah. But I, I didn't do any of my research based on really digging into the literature. I didn't need to. I'm a theorist. And again, that's, I was a, that's not really responsible but it was not – on the other hand, it was good science because it was based on math. It was just math. And so if you'd prove a theorem in math, it's proved. It doesn't matter if you cite the right people. In right. contrast, what I found very quickly was that when I'm doing humanities research, there's no shortcut like that. You can't derive any of this from first principles. You have to just do the reading. So I've actually enjoyed reading and reading and reading and highlighting you know, all these kind of dense works of critical social theory. It's a different way of approaching research. It's new for me. I've enjoyed it. Um, the most challenging part is that I do feel a bit like Cassandra. She was this ancient Greek mythical figure who had the gift of prophecy, but her curse was that no one would, no one would believe her. So and she would tell Maya. people. Yeah, Jeremiah, right, biblically. Uh, and that's not entirely true. I think mean, people have – I get emails daily, messages daily from people saying, I really appreciate what you and Pat Sawyer are doing uh, and really that you're, you're very charitable. You try to present your you, – you cite your sources really carefully. So we get plenty of emails like that. But I do get discouraged when I see, like you said, trusted Christian leaders who just don't seem to get it, who are still throwing around terms like intersectionality and white privilege and white fragility. Not that those terms are necessarily bad, necessarily, depending on how you define them, but they clearly don't understand where they're coming from. It'd be like throwing around uh, terms like 
uh, you know, it's just like if you're familiar with Mormonism, but throwing it around in terms like exaltation or the word of wisdom and using those technical terms. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Those are technical terms that are used by Mormons to describe Mormon doctrines. But imagine an evangelical pastor throwing around terms like that that were clearly being drawn from Mormon theology. And they're totally clueless. They're just like, yeah, what do you mean? Exaltation, right? You're like, no, that means something. When you cite Brigham Young and talk about exaltation, he's talking about something that you don't hopefully mean. So when I see pastors and I see them recommending books like White Fragility or uh, works that are or, – or, or, I just think – I'm thinking to myself, have you read – the things that D'Angelo, what one have you read that book? <laughs> but before you recommend it, because actually I, I have, I have been told by people whose pastors have recommended the books that actually in private, the pastors have said, no, I didn't actually read it, but it's very popular right now. So I recommended it. And I'm thinking, what are you doing? And then, or if they have read it, they will often interpret that book through the lens of their Christian worldview. They'll say things like, well, all D'Angelo is saying is that we should be more humble when talking about race. And I think that's not what she's saying. And you're, you're reinterpreting her work through your own worldview, but her work is not written from a Christian perspective. It's not. So if you actually read what she actually wrote and actually intended to write, she does not mean that at all. And I, I, so I went through like her peer reviewed publications recently and just pulled out insane quotes like uh, whiteness is a form of child abuse or things like, you know, we can't let white rationality dictate what we count as rational because of white neurosis, <laughs> just things like that. And she's white, by the way. But when so. All I'm saying is that Christians need to do a better job of understanding critical theory based on primary sources and doing the reading before they begin to employ these this this jargon. And, and, and it's safer for you simply to employ no jargon at all so that you're not saying things you don't intend to say. You know, you're sounding very woke, Neil, with all these recommendations like do the work, do your homework, go read this book. <laughs> I'm I'm kidding with you, of course, but but I think that that's great advice. That really is. And so with all this reading, Neil, you're not worried that you're gonna become woke by reading all these all these books. You're not worried that the arguments are going to convince you or, you know, are we gonna see Neil Shen are we gonna see Neil Shenvi? In six months on Twitter saying, you know what? I, I was wrong about all this. Uh, I, I to, yeah, I need to divest myself of my whiteness, things like that. Well, I'm not white, so I don't have to do that. <laughs> right. Um, but, there's, but there's brown privilege now too. There's brown that's right, fragility. Yeah. So. so, no, I think one – this is going to sound I mean, arrogant or something, um, but it's not meant to be. Go ahead. But critical theory – is just not true. It's just not true. And I think one of the reasons I'm confident recommending that people read these books uh, is that I just don't think they will be compelling with one condition. If you don't begin by reading them with the assumption that they're true, <laughs> people, that's, that's the really right. concern I have. If people said, we, like, I, my 
my friend Pat and I wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition entitled The Incompatibility of Critical Theory and Christianity. That was the title of the book, uh, the article. We walked through in a, in a brief space, like 1,500 words. We explained why critical theory or this manifestation of critical theory is fundamentally opposed to the Christian worldview. But at the end, we said, if you want an example of a book that is steeped in critical theory and is very popular, you should read White Fragility. We recommended the book, but we recommended it as an example of a book that is incompatible with Christianity. Like Mm -hmm. we recommend the Book of Mormon to a person living in Utah. We'd recommend that a Christian missionary to Muslims should read the Quran for themselves. Now, why do we do that? Well, because once you have the premise, or at least the underlying idea that this might not all be true, I should think critically, frankly, I think it's so clearly unbiblical, I don't worry about people becoming woke if they understand at a simple level that this is a different worldview, and there are some obvious ways in which this worldview is so incompatible with Christianity. Once you have that sort of you're equipped with those again, it five minutes for me to explain to you why these ideas are incompatible. Once you have that, I, I am not terrified that people will read these books and just convert because I think it's so clear. The problem is that's not how it's happening. They're having pastors who are recommending these books positively as these wonderful resources for racial reconciliation or for understanding gender or for understanding class oppression. And I'm thinking, that's the problem. They're, they're not reading critically. They're reading naively. And the, I said this in a, in a podcast with Samuel Say a few weeks ago. The only book you should read uncritically is the Bible. Every, the stuff that I write, the stuff that everybody writes, the stuff that your pastor says, you should always think critically about them. So I, I can't believe I have to say that, but I do. But yeah, so I, I'm not worried about people succumbing to the pull of critical theory. And in fact, I would argue that if you read some of these books, it will become so clear that they're operating on a fundamental different set of assumptions than Christians should, that it will actually inoculate you against the ideas you see in culture. Whereas if you're just sort of picking up these ideas on Instagram and Twitter and from the people at you, the people at your local coffee shop, well, then you're more likely to think, well, that's just the way people think. And I say, no, that's the way that critical theory is telling you to think. But there's a, the, the right way to think is the Christian way to think about these issues. So, yeah, I, I, the other thing, just briefly, when I first, the first book of critical theory that I read, it was a book, it's an anthology called Race, Class, and Gender. It's 500 pages long, but I read a series of essays from different sources. But one thing that really struck me immediately as a scientist was that they were talking about all of these social issues about gender and race and class and economics. There was so little data. There was so little discussion of anything empirical. It was all purely theoretical. And I see that as a theoretical chemist who is very comfortable talking entirely in abstract terms. But when they make these assertions and have no data at all, that began to sort of grate on me. And, and so that is another reason why I think if you read these books and then just read any book 
that tries to deal with these issues from an empirical perspective, you'll notice the contrast immediately. These are really pure theory, and then the other, and then other economists and other political scientists and and other people dealing with race, they really do try to appeal to actual uh, data. That's a big uh, contrast too. Um, according to the Smithsonian, Neil, I'm pretty sure data is uh, is whiteness now. Yes. I don't think I don't think we can use it anymore. I saw that infographic. That was again pure critical race theory. Um, yeah. It's being used by the government now, a similar figure actually in Seattle, in the Kings oh. County. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing. They had a similar thing. Like whiteness, whiteness is defined as sort of, well, it's a complicated. Whiteness means white culture as the standard. That's yeah. right. White supremacy is white culture as the standard. And whiteness is the system of complex social relationships that put white at the top of the racial hierarchy. So they've redefined all these terms. Whiteness does not mean white skin. But yeah, the Smithsonian, for those who you didn't see it, had a an infographic, the Smithsonian, where it listed things like uh, trust in science <laughs> and objective reasoning and cause and effect relationships as manifestations of a white culture. And obviously, a lot of Black people were really offended. <laughs> and, yeah. and like, what <laughs> on earth? Cause and effect thinking is a white thing? That's Saving a, for the future. Yeah. Two parent household. Hard work. Like. Oh, yeah. And, and, the, and the Smithsonian, I guess to their credit, took it down and said, well, that was controversial. But then uh, apparently, the Kings County Executive Office had a training session in which they used a very similar figure uh, that listed things like linear thinking, objectivity as white thinking. That so, is the most white supremacist garbage I've ever yeah, heard. Yeah. But it, it, well, if you understand the theory, though, that's again that they would say that that is a way in which this white so that white supremacy has achieved what's called a hegemonic power. It is the discourse that dominates our thinking and we have to dismantle it uh, by exposing it, not as these universal abstract truth claims, but as ways that justify white dominance. But of course, the way they do that ends up being extremely racist. Yeah. (laughs) But, But they don't see that. To them, they would say, no, we're trying to show that People of color are, uh, are are being oppressed, and it's just being justified by saying, "Well, we're appealing to um, abstract, objective norms." When they're really, but it, it all makes sense from their perspective. Uh, but yes. yeah, obviously, most of us would say that's just incredibly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a funny video actually recently on. Um, it was called a woke or racist, and they had these two figures. Yeah, that. where one guy was woke and one guy was ra- actually just straight up racist. But the joke was that throughout the video, they're talking about how they agree on everything. Yeah, you know, they agree that things like science is a, is a white phenomenon, and the woke guy and the racist guy are both saying, "Yeah, yeah, totally." So, anyway, yeah. well, I don't get into that, but but I I, I will say that yes, um, it, it is shocking that. Things like that are everywhere in the Smithsonian, in you know, local governments. Uh, it's it is really suffusing our culture, and so Christians should be ready to engage with it. So Neil, man, I I literally think I could talk with you about this all day. I want to I want to just go over to the the coffee shop, 
sit down and just pick your brain on this all day long. I mean, maybe we could talk again because I would love, I, I don't think we have time for it today, but I would love to pick your brain on when is it okay to leave a church over this issue um, and and other real, really practical things, practical applications. But um, I would like to address some of the comments we've been getting here. Sure. Um, nothing, n- no major questions, just uh, so... Jackie uh, Plandemon says, thank you for this. Very informative. Now, Felix Rodriguez is watching on YouTube and he's asking if we are Christian apologists or atheist apologists. And I love that question because it's it's hilarious because nowadays Christians and atheists really have been uh, sort of like, like classical atheists, new atheists even, have found ourselves on the same side of this issue. Oh, that's another question I wanted to ask you. And I again, I don't think we have time for it today, Neil. But, um, okay, so Felix, we are both Christians, if that wasn't clear by now. Um, but at some point, I would love to ask you, Neil, about when and how it's appropriate to partner with non-believers in, in this movement. And, and I've been concerned about unequally, uh, un, unequally yokeness, not wokeness, but yokeness, uh, on the other side. So we can, we can talk about that maybe another time. But, um, Felix has a number of comments, but then uh, Greg Wilson says that the critical theorist is uh, counter to dialogue. Right. So, so Neil, to your point that to overcome critical theory, we sit down, open our Bibles, and start a dialogue. Greg is saying, well, they are counter to dialogue. They don't believe in dialogue. Like other counter views, they reject God's word as truth. I believe that we believers will have to demonstrate justice first to force a listening ear. You know, that's a good question. Neil, I, I understand how to reach woke Christians by opening up the Bible and having a dialogue. What about non-Christian woke people? How do we reach them when A, they don't want to dialogue and B, they don't believe the Bible is true? Now, I'm a presuppositionalist. I know how to handle that, uh, you know, from from my perspective. But how how would you... How would you encourage a Christian to engage in that kind of dialogue with someone who rejects the Bible outright? Sure. So like you said, for Christians, we can approach it saying, well, we assume the Bible is true. We assume that we have to assume that we have to assume the best of each other's motives. And we have to come at this as brothers and sisters and then say what God's word says. For non-Christians, one of the best questions you can ask them, if they're very woke, you could say, what would convince you? that your views are false. Is there anything that would convince you that your views on race, class, gender, transgender, sexuality, any are, are false? Just let them mull that over for a little while. Like, is there any, what, what could do it? Because my argument is that this is a worldview and worldviews, I mean, I'm a soft presuppositionalist. So we, I think I would say, yeah, there are these foundational beliefs that you can't get underneath that you just accept them and uh, and then everything else follows from them but you don't you don't justify them by appealing to evidence because they're used to interpret the evidence so i would argue that critical theory is functioning contemporary critical theory is functioning at that level but when you ask someone what would convince you that these ideas are false if they really think about it they might have to say well Really nothing. <laughs> because and now, now they won't say that. Now, no one's gonna say I mean, especially if they're an atheist. They 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 you know, atheists pride themselves. I think 
as we all should in being trying to be rational. So it's unlikely they'll be able to they'll say, this is just my religion. <laughs> They're not going to say that. But it will force them to really think like, th- and, and try to figure out what the most uh, outlandish claim they make is and then it's woke and then start there and say, what would convince you that that claim is false? So a simple example would be something like, um, there is no difference between men and women at all. Like sex is a, you know, that's, that's an extreme claim, even for the woke people. But sex is a, is totally a, a, co- a social construct. Sex is not gender sex is, uh, but the, the more common one would be something like, um, Gender, gender, meaning the experience of gender, of being a sexed person, a person with the biological sex, that's just purely, you know, between your legs, basically. It's just, it's just anatomy. It doesn't affect anything else. And so, here's the thing, and here's the thing. So, all of the inequalities we see in everything related to the genders, so differences in, like, the wage gap, differences in uh, professional interests, all, all of that is the result of the patriarchy. That's a very common feminist claim, and it's kind of a woke claim too. What would convince you that that's not true? And there is reams of scientific evidence and empirical evidence showing not not that sexism doesn't exist. Sexism does, in fact, exist. I totally affirm that. But that not 100% of these differences are purely the result of sexism. So there are, there are people there. There was an article in the New York Times, I believe, talking about the myth of testosterone, the myth that testosterone makes you stronger and faster. And that I think it was a New York. There's a whole book about it. They reviewed it in the New York Times. And I'm sitting there thinking, are we really at that place as a culture where you can't affirm? I mean, there's some incredible graphs. There's a graph that shows. Uh, this is just data again. The the they shows uh, the grip strength, the grip strength of men versus women as a function of age. What you see on that graph is that the the weakest man, the grip strength of the weakest man, is stronger than the grip strength of the strongest woman. Right? Uh, it's not perfect, but it's it's nearly perfect separation of these two bell curves. So. Th- how can so how can you then argue that testosterone makes no difference to athletic performance? This is it's insanity, but it's that's what we're. But you'll find these claims being made not by these radical gender theorists nowadays, but by major newspapers making claims like that. So there, so if you can find one of those claims that they're making that is just way off the reservation, don't start by debunking it. Don't start there. Don't start there. Start by asking them. Is there anything that would change your mind? Because what you're aiming for is you don't. Ca- I don't care if people believe that grip strength is socially constructed. I don't care whether they think that. I care about the beliefs underneath that belief. Why would you think that? The reason they think that is because they've bought the the deeper idea that every problem boils down to oppression, and every inequality is a result of oppression, and that that's the assumption you want to probe and interrogate because they, they've accepted this idea of the oppressor oppressed binary so try to find the most obviously false claim they're making and then ask them what would convince you that you're wrong it's a good place to start there that's really good okay we we have time for i think two more questions can you can we do two more questions yeah sure okay 
Tamara Nayasha asks this. My pastor used the word, quote, white privilege, end quote, during a sermon and said that white people must acknowledge that it exists. Would that be classed as CRT or critical race theory? Sure. So the term white privilege was uh, popularized by Peggy McIntosh in 1989, and she says essentially it's unearned advantage. So it's the it's the unearned advantages that whites have over blacks on average, all things being equal. So McIntosh lists like 49 of these unearned advantages. And do they exist? Well, sure. But, but for example, she says things like, uh, as a white person, I can arrange my day so that I'm always around people of my own race. And as a black person, I can't arrange my day that way. Most most people can't. Now, is that true? Well, yeah, probably because why? Well, we live in a country that right now at least is majority white. So statistically, is that true? We, we Should we say, no, that's not true? Well, no, that is that is true. Okay. Another example she gives is, as a white person, I can buy Band-Aids that more closely match my skin tone. Right. right. Should you should you say that's not true? No, it's that's true. Now, again, I'm half Indian, so actually Band-Aids are pretty good for me personally, but you know, my, my wife is much paler than me, and so she, you know, she... So, but is it true that Band-Aids, on average, are closer matched to white skin than the white skin than to blacks? Yeah, sure. So I would say here's a good example. This is a great example of where it would be silly to deny that. Are you really going to deny that Band-Aids are the color that they are? No, just fine. Yeah, sure. If you want to call that white privilege... And there are other things, too, that are more significant. So, for example... There are, there are studies that show that there is racial discrimination in hiring. There are lots of them. So, and they've done, they're very carefully controlled. They basically show that uh, a black person and a white person who are equally qualified, equally qualified, that the white person will be, will receive a callback at about a 40% higher rate than blacks. And they've done, again, dozens of these studies carefully controlling that. So is that an unearned advantage? Yes, it is. We can't. We shouldn't deny that, right? So, here's a case where I'd say, yeah. So, but do you want to affirm that white privilege exists? Well, here's the problem. When Macintosh defines that term, she combines these things that are both amoral, like the color of band aids, and things that are actually the result of sin. So, for example, she says, as a white person, I won't be followed around the store by someone who assumes I'll steal things. Now, wait a minute. In a sinless world, a person who's white and black would be treated the same, right? There would be no stealing in the first place. So, so, we, so in that paper, when she defines white privilege, she's combining things that are totally morally neutral, like, like Band-Aids, and things that are the result of sin, like assuming that someone's going to steal things. And she puts them all under the heading of white privilege. So that's a mistake because they're combining totally different categories. Then also she says that like in her paper, she says, like male privilege, whites are blind to white. So men are blind to male privilege. And as a feminist, I was so frustrated that my male colleagues could not see their male privilege in the same way I was blind to my white privilege. And then she has other papers where she talks about heterosexual privilege and other enabled privilege and other forms of privilege. But she so she's operating from this 
framework that's rooted in critical social theory. So when I want to talk about how whites have unearned advantages over blacks on average, not everywhere, by the way, there are some places where blacks have an unearned advantage over over whites. I mean, it's a silly example, but it's it's it's, it's as silly as the Band-Aid one. I played a lot of pickup basketball as a as a high school student, right? And if you know, if a half Indian walks onto a basketball court and a black guy walks on basketball court, who's going to get picked first? The black guy, right? Because you're like, oh, black kids guys play basketball. That's a stereotype. That's not true, right? And I was a decent basketball player, but is that a form of black privilege? I mean, whatever. I guess. But my only point is, she's making a lot of assumptions about what can be called privilege and what goes into that category that I wouldn't want to endorse. So I just talk about unearned advantages that all of us have. I have many unearned advantages as a man, as a heterosexual, as a uh, as a half Indian, I guess. I don't know. But let's talk about that. Don't deny that exists. But I wouldn't use that terminology because it includes all kinds of other assumptions that you do not want to affirm. Uh, that's good. Okay, last question. This is from Nathan Barrow. How long before race becomes a fluid construct within critical theory? As of now, gender is fluid and race is not within CT. I'll add too, by the way, this is not from Nathan, but this is from me. Age is something I think that uh, we might see becoming quote unquote fluid soon. Um, and I think there's, there's an agenda behind that as well. Uh, how long before CT presents a radical redefinition of race? Um, yeah, interested to hear your thoughts on this, Neil. I'd say sexuality too is another one. It's uh, mm-hmm. the fluidity of sexuality that goes yeah, back to yeah. Foucault, actually. Um, yeah. And actually, I would say that they're not redefining any of these things. So, so um, they are saying they're all socially constructed. They all are. They would they would be consistent. They'd say all of these categories: right. age, race. The age thing is interesting. I can get into that. But the age, yeah. race, um, gender, sexuality—they're all socially constructed. They're consistent there. Now, as Christians, we would say, well, gender is not. Gender is based on sex, and sex is based right. on biology. So that, that's just wrong about that. But race, I would say, yeah, race is a social construct, not meaning like ancestry. Ancestry is a real thing. Ethnicity is a real thing. But we have these categories of race. You're like, okay, see that guy from Senegal and that guy from you know uh, Brazil and that guy from you know Atlanta, they're all black. You're like, Hey, what? That's like yeah. loving the other people. They're completely different. Or that guy from Portland and that guy from Russia and that guy from France are all white. That's a right. weird category to have, right? So biblically, race is not a category at all. And I would say race, the way that we construct race today is a social artifact, right? We 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 lump really random people that are very different in their ancestry into categories of like white or black or Hispanic or. or I think about I just think about the other day Asian. Asian is a racial category. You know, Asia is a pretty big place. Like India and Korea and Japan and China are kind of different places and they're kind of large. So when you think about it that way, you're like, oh my gosh, yeah, race is a social construct. Um, But they would say all of those are social constructs. But again, so why do they theorize, why do they treat race and gender so differently in the sense that you can be transgender and not trans race? And it goes back to social justice. Their goal is to dismantle forms of oppression. And so they will theorize, they will build their theories in a way that they feel is most oriented towards tearing down those oppressive structures. And so on their view, 
the way to tear down the oppressive structure of the gender binary is to transgress it, to say it's a it's a it's an arbitrary construct, and we need to um, make room for people that are transgender. We need to realize that it's all arbitrary and and um, there's a what's the word they use? Well, the word that queer theorists use is they're queering the space. They're deliberately um, destabilizing the gender binary. Uh, on the other hand, race is not theorized that way. Race is theorized the opposite way. The way that we we dismantle the power of white supremacy is to make race incredibly salient and to point out how people are racist and they are assuming a white standard and then to get people to overturn that system that produces that hierarchy. That's at least the way that they're theorizing it. Now, is that consistent? Like I said, I think Rebecca Tuval would say, Tuval would say no, it's not consistent unless you realize that it's all done towards an end. That's the reason they do it that way. And so is it ever going to change? I don't, I don't think so. I think they're going to consistently, I think they're probably, frankly, it, it serves a purpose, right? It's they, very Saul Alinskyite. Yeah, well, yeah uh, I haven't read Saul Alinsky, but yeah. I, they, but I think they're, the they're, very, the means. they're very, yeah, they're very, I, I was going to say that critical theorists, contemporary critical theorists, I always qualify it that way. They're very pragmatic. You know, they will use if 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 uh, data will serve their purpose, they'll use data. If arguments will serve their purpose, they'll use arguments and logic. They'll, they will use that. They won't. They won't or, or math even. They, they'll use these tools to the extent that they serve the purpose of social justice. Uh, however, once those tools are used in a way that would subvert social justice, they will then deconstruct them. So that's why you have this very ambivalent attitude towards things like statistics, or even to math recently. There have been some interesting articles about how two plus two, two plus two equals four, four right? Questioning whether whiteness, right? Whether two plus two really equals four, or whether that's also a, there's an element of social construction even in two plus two equals four. Um, so yeah, so I think that the answer is they're not going to change that anytime soon. The definition is is consistent. It's all socially constructed. The question is, how then is that used? And they are used in very different ways, but it's in the, they're using the way that they feel will most, most benefit the oppressed. Yeah. Thank you for that, Neil. Neil, would you please give us a plug for your website, which has been so, so, so helpful uh, to me and many others? What, what's your website? How can people keep in touch with you and follow your thinking and, and your work in this area? Sure. So just go to uh, org. and see it scrolling across the screen there. Uh, if you just Google Neil Shenvi, I think I'm the only one in the world right now. I just, is Shenvi is not org? a very common name. Was it? Yeah, yeah. Google Neil Shenvi, you'll find my website. Absolutely. Okay. So not, not right. .com then. I need to change that. Uh, so the website is shenviapologetics.com. But to oh, find that, it's the easiest way to find me is to Google Neil Shenvi. Okay. And uh, I'm also active on Twitter. That's just at Neil Shenvi, N-E-I-L-S-H-E-N-V-I. Um, and I post my writing and, you know, post relevant articles. It's pretty much all critical theory all the time uh, and memes. But that's a way to keep in touch with me. Yes. Awesome. All right. Well, brother, thank you so much for joining us. Um, you've been very gracious with your time. I know I've learned a ton. And based on the comments and the questions that have 
come in. I mean, you really got to take a look at these questions and, and comments. We didn't get to all of them, but I can tell this, this has been very engaging, very compelling for folks as your work often is. And so uh, I praise God for you, brother. Um, keep up the good work. And I know doing this kind of stuff puts a big old target on your back. And so um, I just want to encourage our listeners and our viewers, be praying for Dr. Shendi, be praying for his family. Um, pray that God gives him a backbone that can withstand whatever attacks may come his way. And you know what? Pray that the work that he's doing right now would really wake up the church, not woke up, wake up the church to seeing the threat of critical theory, the danger that it can cause, but ultimately the grace and the power that is inherent in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the real Christian message Christian message that we want to get out there. So um, to connect with the Think Institute, simply go to thethink.institute. Get all the episodes of the Think Podcast by going to thethink.institute slash podcast. Follow us on social media. And uh, you can connect with me personally if you want to shoot me an email. Send an email to thethink.institute at gmail.com. So this is not goodbye. This has just been a little pit stop along the way of your spiritual journey. I sure hope that it's been helpful to you. I hope that you found something you can put into practice this next upcoming week. And that's all we have for you. So until next time, I hope it made you think.